As I said, we'll be in a couple different places this morning, um, but uh, let me start with this traditional text of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. So what he's saying here is he says, Okay, now what I have to tell you, it's not because you're doing it well, it's because you're not doing it well. And then he begins to give some, some instructions here. He says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I bear that there are divisions among you, or hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another one gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So this is why we do this here in our church. This is why we have the Lord's Supper. As I was doing some studying and preparing for this message, I was thinking of, of uh, you know, every good sermon has to have a good opening illustration, right? You know, I mean, that's, that's what's expected. And so um, trying to figure out what the opening illustration I could use for this and, and where I wanted to go, God brought to my mind uh, a story about a man by the name of John Knox. How many of you have ever heard of John Knox before? Raise your hand. Okay, okay, decent number of you. Good. John Knox was a uh, Scottish reformer, okay? Um, there's a picture of him there. Uh, Duck Dynasty guy's got nothing on that beard right there. Um, 1513, they, we don't know if he was born in 1512 or 1513, and so I made him younger, 1513, uh, to that, that should not be 1517. He... he um, <laughs> I mean, he grew that beard fast. <laughs> okay. um, I think it's 72, okay? <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, John Knox was a Scottish reformer, and uh, he was called the Luther of Scotland. He uh, was uh, someone who was very prolific in his preaching. Uh, he wasn't as known for his writings as other reformers were, but his work still exists today. Um, he. He, was, he spent about 19 months in prison for preaching. Then he was exiled to England, so he went to England for a while. Then when Mary Tudor came to the throne, uh, he, he had to leave because persecution was ramping up. So he goes over to Geneva, meets a guy by the name of John Calvin. They interact for a little while. Then he leaves Geneva, goes to Frankfurt, Germany, spends some time there leaves to go back to his homeland, Scotland, where then he pastored uh, for a number of years and enjoyed a great ministry. Now, this was a guy who, who 
Theologians today still go back and, and look at his, his writings and look at his, uh, uh, his contribution. And he would be somebody that, that would be well to read and well to study. Um, now, with people like this, you, you often think that, that you know, it would be cool to go see their graves and, and things like that. And, and I would love to do it. When I lived in New England, one of the things that was really cool for me is I, I stumbled upon a cenotaph for um, uh, Adoniram Judson on Burial Hill in Boston, Massachusetts. He was buried at sea, Adoniram Judson, first Baptist missionary to be sent from uh, America. And uh, he was buried at sea, but there's a cenotaph in Boston there. And so it's cool to see these markers, these, these places, these, these graves, these tombstones of these great men who have, have lived before us. Now, if we were to go to his, his cemetery, John Knox's cemetery, uh, we would have his, his burial plot. We'd have to travel to Edinburgh. We'd go over to Scotland, Edinburgh. We'd have to go to the St. Giles Cathedral. And we would have to look in a parking lot. Okay, let me show you a picture of, that's his grave. Um, he had been largely forgotten in, in so many ways, and at, at some point later on, they, uh, they just paved over his grave. And they put this tiny little bronze marker there. There's, there's a brass marker there. There's, there's nothing written on it. Um, there used to be a marker that said, the above plaque or bluff stone um, is where John Knox is buried. There used to be a, a JK on there, but that's worn off. And uh, now, if you want to go see it, you better hope someone's not parked in parking stall number 23 there. That's John Knox's grave. Now, why do I share this with you? Because in some ways, I feel like the Lord's table is somewhat like Knox's grave. I mean, people walk by this all the time and they see it. They observe it's there, and I think probably some people there even know what it is, but it's not appreciated. It's observed, but it's not appreciated. I mean, putting, you know, they, they painted over his grave. They paved over his grave. Cars park on top of it. You can't argue that that's an appreciated grave at all. It's observed, but it's not appreciated. And sometimes I fear, and not with everybody, of course, you know, but I fear that when we come to the table here, we observe it. I mean, every month we, you know, first or second Sunday of the month, depending on, on the month, we, we observe the table. But I wonder, do we really appreciate it? Now, for years, I, I know in my own soul, in my own life, I had underappreciated the Lord's table. Um, I, I observed it monthly. Uh, growing up, and then uh, in one church weekly as well. And, um, but I don't think I really appreciated it. So my goal today is, my, my goal today is just for us to, to unfold this a little bit, and hopefully we could gain a greater, a greater appreciation for the Lord's table. So that when we observe this, that we don't just casually walk by parking stall number 23 and see a brass plate there, but don't appreciate it for what it really is. That's the goal today. So the table reminds us of several things. Number one, if you're taking notes, the table reminds us of Jesus' identity. James refers to him as the Lord of glory. 
Uh, we saw that last week of how James, he, he referred to this, this Jesus as the Lord of glory. Now, when we go into the letter of James, we understand that he doesn't refer to Jesus often. And, and we don't see much about Jesus in, uh, by name, I should say, in the letter of James. I mean, the theology of Jesus, the person, and, and the, the contribution of Jesus is in every page of James's letter. But to the name of Jesus doesn't appear very often at all. And now James, as you remember, he he did not believe in his half-brother, Jesus, until after Jesus died and rose again. But then once he believed in Jesus, after he saw the risen Jesus Christ, after he saw the risen Savior, it seems, though, and it gives the appearance that James began to believe wholeheartedly. And the words that he wanted to describe Jesus was the Lord of glory. This is who he was. Now, when we come to like the passage where I had you turn to in 1 Corinthians 11, we see that, that, that there's, there's great symbolism here and that Jesus had this last supper for a reason. It wasn't because they were just simply hungry and they needed some food. There was a purpose behind this. First of all, the table reminds us about Jesus' humanity. Now, this is, this is so important for us to get. The elements here that, that, before, that, that are sitting before you, the bread and the juice, that they remind us of Jesus' body sacrifice. His body was broken and his blood was spilt. But inherent in that representation is a reminder that Jesus was human. And because he was human, he completely understands you, which is good because often we don't understand ourselves, right? We have, we have these emotions and these, these conflicting emotions. We don't understand exactly even what's going on in our own soul sometimes. But, but Jesus, this is the thing we need to understand. When you can physically touch this bread and this juice, this is the, one of the very few visible, tangible symbols that God has given to us. Us, when he gave this to us, when you hold that bread in just a few minutes, what you are reminding yourself of is that Jesus had a body. He was human, and that body was broken. Now, we often just want to say, okay, let's focus on the broken part of it, and that is needed, and we need to do that. But let's, before we go to that level, let's just stop and consider Jesus' humanity. Why is that important? So when you hold the bread in just a few minutes, when it's past you and you pick it up and, and you feel this, I mean, you, you can touch it, you can touch it, you can taste it. And so your holiness, it should be a reminder that he was human. And that should give you great joy. The reason why is because he completely understands. We have a God who understands us. We have a God who knows what this last week was like. He knows what your trials are like. As I was just sitting in my office, I was thinking of just a few ways that Jesus could identify with us. And so I'm just going to put these on the screen. Have you ever prayed to God through tears and loud cries? Has there ever been a time where you have been so overcome with something and, and you, you, your soul was so moved and, and, and you were just crying out in desperation to God through, through tears and loud cries? Have you ever done that? Jesus has. Look at the scripture there. It says there in, in Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears. So whatever motivated you to cry out to the Lord and through tears, Jesus understands that. That's what the bread should remind us of, that he's, he, he was human, and so he understands these emotions. Number two, have you ever been exhausted? Have you ever been just so tired? 
And you just don't know that you could carry on. I, just last night, we had some people over to the house, and, and we were having dinner together, and we were talking about when children were first born, and when their son was born, uh, he just remembers that that day, it was just, exa- he was so exhausted from work, and he came home, he just wanted to sleep. He, he said, I told my wife, I got home, I just wanted to go to sleep. And so he went to sleep, and or starting to go to sleep, and his wife said, hey, you know what I mean, she's nine months pregnant here, can you, can you go out and get me some 7-Up and everything? So he goes out, gets 7-Up, comes back, says, I just want to sleep. And then sure enough, 20 minutes later, I think we need to go to the hospital. (laughs) And he said, I was just so exhausted. I was just so exhausted. Have you ever felt that way? Jesus has as well. Remember in John 4, verse 6, Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Jesus understands what it's like to be tired. Have you ever experienced great temptation? Jesus did. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so have you ever experienced great temptation? Jesus has as well. He understands. He knows that feeling. Have you ever experienced great suffering? Jesus knows about suffering. Hebrews chapter 2 Verse 18, for because he himself had suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Is life not what you think it should be? Is life not what you thought it would become? Are you experiencing suffering in your life? Then at the table, you can understand that you have a Savior who gets that. He understands that. He knows that. When you hold the bread in your hand, you're reminded that he was human. This was his body, and he understood suffering. Have you ever experienced this? Jesus has. Have you ever experienced hostility from others who misunderstand you? Jesus did. He knows all about that. Hebrews chapter 12. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Have you ever felt alone or isolated? Jesus didn't even have a place to lay his head. Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, And Jesus said to them, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Have you ever felt alone? Have you ever felt isolated? Have you ever felt, you know, all by yourself? Jesus understands that feeling. And be reminded of that at the table. Have you ever lost someone who you loved? Jesus completely understands that feeling. He understands grief. John 11 Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how much he loved him. Have you ever experienced the grief and the sorrow of someone who you deeply love Departing this world. Jesus understands that feeling. Jesus felt that. And I think one of the best ways to remind ourselves that Jesus understands and he can minister to us that this is why we need Jesus is at the table. We see it. We, we feel the representation of his body. Have you ever lost someone you loved? Have you ever felt intense sorrow Jesus has as well, Mark 14, 34. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful. Even to death, remain here and watch. Jesus felt sorrow. 
Finally, have you ever felt the sting of disappointment after being let down? Jesus knows that feeling too. Again, I turn to Mark 14, verse 37 through 40. And he came and found them sleeping, the, the disciples in the garden there. They were sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. You read that pathetic passage there and you just see, you can almost uh, uh, feel what Jesus must have been feeling there as he's going, he knows he's going to die. He's going in the garden and his, his time has come. The hour has come. And so he tells the people closest to him, he says, would you stay here and pray? Would you stay here and pray? And so I'm going to go and we're going to pray to the father there. You stay right here and pray for me. Pray for the situation. You pray. And he goes and he comes back and he sees him sleeping. And this didn't happen just one time. This happened multiple times. And he says, could, could, could you pray for me? Pray for me. You, know, you almost feel what Jesus was feeling there. But more importantly, Jesus knows what you're feeling. We could go on and on and on and ask questions like we're asking and raise these different parallels and things like that, but I think you get the point. Jesus understands the table reminds us of his humanity. It reminds us of his identity. It reminds us that Jesus totally gets it. And so when you, when you take the bread in a few minutes... And when it's passing, you're paying. just be reminded. This reminds me that Jesus had a body. He was human. He felt what I feel. He knows what I know. He, he's experienced what I've experienced, yet he was without sin. That's the reason why we celebrate. This is the reason why it's so important to me because there's so many times where I feel all alone or I feel uh, uh, alone in my trial or I feel that some people just don't understand or better yet, I can't articulate what I'm feeling. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like you just cannot get people to understand what is going through your mind or what you're experiencing? But yet when I come to the table and I'm reminded Jesus was human, Jesus gets it. This is one of the reasons why I love the table. Now, not only does the table remind us about Jesus' humanity, but it reminds us of his deity as well. Because, you see, we know the rest of the story. And we also know that, that this was a sacrifice that was acceptable to God. And the only way that this would be acceptable to God would be if that Jesus was God. Because if he was only human, if that's all he was, then his death wouldn't, and if he was a sinful human, then his death wouldn't have meant anything to us. But he lived a life of perfect obedience because he was also God. Theologians call this the hypostatic union. Laymen call it the very confusing, <laughs> okay? And I'm there as well. How can God, how can Jesus be 100% God, 100% man at the same time? It is. It, it, it's just something that the Bible teaches that Jesus was God because his sacrifice was acceptable. He said, I and the Father are one. We could go through a whole bunch of series of verses that teach us why Jesus is God. But we also know that he was human and that, that he lived this life and he, and he endured temptation and yet he did not succumb to it and yet he did not sin. And the reason why that is so important is because when you pick up this bread in a few minutes and you're reminded of Jesus... And his humanity, you also reminded, but yet this brokenness here was sufficient for me. This is what we're reminded of here. Every time we come to the table here, it reminds us of Jesus' humanity, it reminds us of his deity. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20 says this, He is the image of the invisible God, talking about Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. 
This is talking about his, his, his God-like actions here. And he is before all things and in, and in all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven or in, uh, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The reason why we know that Jesus was God with passages like this, but we also know the rest of the story that he did not, he did not stay in the grave. This is alluded to in this text here. He rose again. He conquered death. And by that, he conquered sin. He satisfied the wrath of God. He satisfied what was required there. And yet then he rose again. He defeated sin and death. The grave could not hold him. So when we contemplate the humanity of Jesus at the table, we must also contemplate the deity of Jesus at the table. Only God could do what he did. Only God could conquer the grave. And that is Jesus. It was God's idea to save you from your sins. When the rain started to fall in Noah's day and the ark, the door to the ark was shut up and the man, uh, the men and women and children started beating on the door saying, let us in. They wanted to be saved then. It was their idea to be saved at that point, but it was too late. We are not like those people. It was not our idea to be saved from our sins. God, this was his plan before we were even born. He had this planned out that we could be saved from our sins. So only God can save you from your sins. And so when you come to the table and you take the bread in your hands, would you please feel a reminder that God, I said God, God died and rose again to save you from your sins and he understands you more than you understand yourself. So this is one reason why I run to the table. I really do. I look forward to this. I I look forward to holding the bread. I look forward to to meditating on Jesus and, and, and the fact that he had a body. It was broken for me. The sacrifice, the fact that in his humanity, he totally understands us. We have a God that is not distant. We have a God that is very personal. And this is what is symbolized at the table. This is why it's so important to me. So we see... The table reminds us of the identity of Jesus Christ. Number two, the table reminds us of God's mercy. Back in, in um, James chapter 2, there was this text where it says, So speak and so act so those, as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is well mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's almost like in this last sentence there, those four words, mercy triumphs over judgment. It's almost like James, it was, it was this, this, this um, explosion of praise when he talked about mercy and judgment. And he says, you know, you got to show mercy. You've been shown great mercy. You be merciful to other people. And that's the context that James is talking about is helping the poor. And then later on in verses 14 and following, next week when we begin to get into that text, we'll see that, that James is saying, this is the way to show mercy. This is the way that, that you show that you have been shown great mercy is that you take care of other people and you do things for other people and you be merciful to them. It's not that you, you don't be merciful to other people so to try to get God's mercy, but because you have received God's mercy, you need to show mercy. This is what James is talking about here. And so 
I, I couldn't help but when I was thinking about the table and, and preparing for this to think that this also reminds us of God's great mercy. The reality is that we deserve God's wrath and punishment. That's the reality. My fear is intellectually we understand that. And intellectually we would say, well, of course I do, but we don't feel that we deserve God's wrath and punishment. A couple of verses. They'll be on the screen. You have to turn to Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Right there, in the beginning. Rules were set out. Rules were in place. And he said, this is, this, this is it. You can, you can have everything. There's this one tree that you can't have. And if you do, you will die. And what did they do? They ate of it. Thereby tainting all of humanity. Because of those actions by those two individuals, we were born with a sin nature and we were born imperfect. And we were born, not only born imperfect, but we were born with a bent towards evil. We, are, we naturally are bent towards that way. So we deserve God's wrath and punishment. We really do. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Cursed. Sin, it brought a curse on us. Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Wow. You know, there's going to be people who feel like they should be in heaven and they're not going to be. And the reason why is because they were trusting in their own works or they were trusting in something other than Jesus Christ. But the sobering reality is that hell will be filled with a lot nicer and more sincere people than us. And if we don't believe that, we don't fully appreciate the mercy of God. You see, this text here, I mean, they did great things. They, they did things. They, they, they were probably very nice people and they, they were very sincere in some of the things, but they did not trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. My fear is that we don't appreciate the mercy of God. We, we, we really need to believe that we deserve God's wrath and punishment. This table reminds us of this. What this table reminds us is the wrath of God was poured out on an individual in our place. We all deserve God's wrath and punishment. 
Secondly, mercy is only meaningful when we understand when we understand our debt. Mercy is only meaningful when we understand our debt. Remember back last week we talked about how James he reminded us that if we break the law at one point we are accountable for all of it. Remember the illustration of the glass and and at one point it was broken but yet it cracked through the entire thing and so all of it was rendered useless and so if we break the law at one point we're accountable to all of it. And so and so we, we, we have to understand our debt. Now, now here's, here's, here's where we can, we can make a mistake here. And, and I'm not advocating that we wallow in our sinfulness, okay? I'm not, I'm not advocating that we do some sort of, you know, uh, we, we beat ourselves up and we are just terrible people and that's what we focus on. That needs to be part of our meditation, but that can't be the central part because then we miss the whole point of it if that's our central point. But we do need to understand the debt that we incurred in order to appreciate the mercy of God. We need to understand the significance of what Christ has done for us. So think about it this way. Uh, Many of us have mortgages. And uh, we have a house in Rockford that we still own. Or, well, I think we own a couple square tiles in the kitchen and the bank owns the rest of the house, but we have this house there that I would love to get rid of. Okay, so if anyone wants to buy a house in Rockford, you know, come and talk to me. But so we, we bought this house and we're, we're, we're paying for this house, and so I've got a mortgage there. Many of you have mortgages as well. Let's just say um, on the same day, okay, so, so you, you get your, your statement, and so you see that you owe, let's say, I was gonna pick a number, $150,000, okay? So, so you owe $150,000 in your house. Like, man. All right, you know, in 30 years, we're going we're gonna to get this paid off. Let's just say that the same day that you get that notice to you and to remind you of that, that you uh, also f- remember that you forgot to pay your cell phone bill. And so you're now late. And so you're like, ah, oh, $10 late fee for Verizon. All right, okay. And so, so you got these two bills that, that you're thinking about here. Now, Let's just say that, that you call up Verizon and you say, look, you know, here's the deal. I've been with you guys for seven years. I've never been late. You know, would you, you know, is there any way you can waive this $10 fee? And so the customer service representative is like, oh, absolutely. No problem. You know, so $10 fee gone. Great. And so you, you hang the phone up. You move on with your day. Let's say the same day that you get notice in the mail that says your mortgage has been paid in full forgiven. Now, which of these two forgiveness of debt would you be most joyous about? I mean, I don't think any of us would be posting on Facebook or calling our friends or whatever about the Verizon $10 charge being removed. I think it would be about how we had our $150,000 debt erased just like that in a matter of seconds. One second you owed it, the next second you didn't. I mean, we, that would move us. That, that would be something that we would say, this is incredible. You see, the more we understand the weight or the, the debt that was owed, the more we appreciate the mercy that forgives those debts. And so when we get to the point where we start getting, uh, um, uh, we start being very cavalier about what God has forgiven of us, we need to be reminded of the debt. 
And this is one of the reasons why I think the Lord's table is so important, is that we are reminded of the debt. Now, it's not to focus on just the debt, but rather the forgiveness. That's the point, because if we only focus on the debt, then we're, we're wallowing in something that God doesn't want us to wallow in. But we have to have an understanding of the debt to fully appreciate the forgiveness. And so just like in order to fully appreciate that you owed $150,000 on your house and it has been mercifully and graciously forgiven, and so you appreciate that, you have to have an understanding of the debt. And so here when you come to the table, we're reminded of our debt. Well, we don't stay there because it, it, it wasn't our blood that was shed. It wasn't our body that was broken. It was Jesus's. And so that should cause us to appreciate again the mercy of God. This, these are things that remind us. This is why we need this because I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm prone to forget. And I think, I think the number one sin that every person struggles with is forgetfulness. I'm not talking about forgetting where you put your keys. I'm talking about forgetting what God has done for us. Here's a reminder. We come to this table. Be reminded. I'm a forgetful person. Just before uh, uh, Sunday school, I was talking to a couple people. We were talking about forgetfulness. And, and uh, Wayne was one of them. He was talking about, you know, sometimes you walk into a room like, oh, why? No, why did why did I go into this room, you know, again? Now, he's old, and so that's part of it. But, but, um, but we do this. I do this too. You know, we, we all do this, right? But I'm not talking about that type of forgetfulness. I'm talking about, why do I need this? I forget God's mercy. And I hate that about myself. I hate that I, hate that I need to be reminded all the time. But I do. And so in a further act of mercy, God gave us a reminder. So we're to live, um, we're to live understanding the debt and the forgiveness and the mercy of God here. So when you come to the table in a few minutes, when you hold that bread in just a few minutes, it's going to be a broken piece it was ripped off from a bigger loaf. The bread symbolizes the brokenness of Jesus' body. This is why we break it in the service rather than neatly cutting it up in squares ahead of time. We want to see the, the breaking, the symbolism there. When you hold that bread, know that it should have been your body that paid for your sins. The wrath of God that tore Jesus' body to pieces has been poured out, should have been poured out on you, but Jesus stepped in and took your place. This was the Father's plan. This was God's great act of mercy. Consider the debt that was against you. Whatever you imagine your debt to be, it's actually far worse than what we think. But be reminded of God's mercy on your soul whenever we hold this piece of bread. Number three, you see it on the screen already. The table reminds us of our responsibility. Back in James chapter 2, I said last week that we are to live in anticipation of our upcoming judgment. Um, I, uh, this is not the judgment that James is referring to about people being condemned. It's more about their life being weighed. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said that by taking the Lord's Supper together, they would be proclaiming, literally preaching the Lord's death. And Paul told the Corinthians to do this until Jesus comes back. 
And so the table reminds us that we have received the gospel and how we live our lives matters. So to receive the gospel of Jesus means that we are saved. And to receive the gospel means that our eternal life is secure. But the judgment that we will experience will not determine whether or not we are condemned, but it will determine the rewards that we receive for how we lived our lives. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And so we are to live in light of that. And the table reminds us that, okay, because we have been saved, because Jesus' body has been broken, because the blood has been spilled, and because we are invited to the table as children of God, as, as co-heirs of Jesus Christ, as someone who, who has believed in Jesus Christ and who Jesus has saved from his sins, I've been invited to the table. Once was enemy, now seated at his table. Jesus, thank you. Remember that song? And so we've been invited to the table. And when you come to the table, be reminded that there's an upcoming judgment of how we live our lives. It matters. Jesus did this. He did this for a reason. He didn't do this for nothing. He did this so that your life would be changed. So when you hold that bread, be reminded, my life should be changed because of this. And I will be held accountable because I know this and God has been merciful to my soul. When we come to the table, we are reminded that we are a self-proclaimed follower of Jesus Christ. And so we're accountable to his word. Jesus, excuse me, James, he told us in, in, back in James 2, verse 12, he says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Keep speaking. Keep acting. Make this the, the natural pattern of your life of knowing that there will be a judgment. Knowing that we will give an account should motivate us to use our liberty well. James, excuse me, Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians, said that some people may enter heaven, but, but lost all the rewards they could have received that they could have given to Jesus. When we come to the table, we're reminded that God has shown us great mercy and has given us new life. We are to represent Christ. We are to live fulfilling the royal law, loving your neighbor as yourself. And so when we come to the table, we're reminded of that we represent Jesus Christ, to live like it. Letter B, and our last point here is, we are to live in appreciation of God's mercy. James told us to show mercy without partiality, and we do this because we're debtors to mercy. We've been shown great mercy, and so if we have been shown great mercy, who are we to refuse showing mercy to other people? If the table is to remind us of God's mercy, which I believe that is an appropriate application, then the table should also remind us to show mercy to other people. When we come to the table, we're reminded that we are debtors to God's mercy. And so we show mercy because he has shown mercy to us. The application that James makes in chapter 2 is that make, showing mercy towards the poor. And, and we can make that application or we can expand it uh, as well. But we show mercy to the poor following James's application, not because we have so much, but because we really had nothing at all. You see, you know, some people, we like to help people, you know, the, to, to, out of a position of strength or superiority. But I wonder if that's the best way to help people. I think it would be a better way to help others is out of a position of debt or gratitude. Let me explain what I mean by that, is that we tend to be motivated to care for the poor because we have been given so much. And that's not a bad motivation necessarily. But we often leave people feeling like they are projects or that we are trying to do good out of pity or to ease guilt. Instead, I believe that we should care for the poor, to use James's application here, because God has forgiven us much. 
We haven't shown great mercy from God because of this we are reminded of our helplessness. We're reminded of our powerlessness. We're reminded that we could do nothing to help ourselves. But we cried out to God for mercy and he heard our plea. And so we help the helpless because we have been helped by the mercy of God. I'm reminded of, of uh, uh, Psalm 116.1. It says, I love the Lord because he heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. So my only point here is that when we come to the table, we should be reminded of God's mercy. And because of that, we should be reminded that then we have a responsibility to show mercy to other people. And so my point is this. If we're going to show mercy to the poor, to use James's application, if we're going to feed the homeless, if we're going to do this, don't do it from a position of strength and superiority of, well, I have so much, you don't have anything, so let me share a little bit of what I have. That's not necessarily bad, but I believe a better gospel understanding of it is I'm actually a debtor to mercy. I'm actually someone who had nothing, but Jesus saved me from my sins, and because of that, I am now motivated to help you because you are a debtor as well. And so the, the playing ground is equal at that point. Rather than me condescending to people to help them because they don't have as much as I have, what I'm doing is I'm saying, no, because I had nothing and needed mercy, my I pleaded, I love that it's plural there, my pleas for mercy. I was so dead in my trespasses and sins, I could do nothing to save myself. And so, but God, being rich in mercy, Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy, showed us his great love. And so for me, as I understand this, I come to the table and I see God has shown me great mercy. Then what I do is I say, because I've been shown mercy, because I had nothing to offer, and this table reminds me that I go and help other people because they have nothing as well. It's not out of superiority or strength. It's out of actually weakness and debt. You see, this is how we help people. We don't, we don't go out there and, and try to help our community because we have so much. We go out and help because really we have nothing but Jesus. And Jesus is what they need. And so I just encourage us when we come to the table, these are things that should be reminded of. God's mercy is on display here. And so what do I do with this? What do I do with this? Our position was what we see here. Our responsibility we see in Zechariah chapter 7. For thus says the Lord, render true judgment, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against in your heart. Matthew chapter 5 verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Then there's a parable, and I close with this. There's a parable in Matthew 18. But a man with an unforgiving servant. Maybe you're familiar with the story. The man owed a lot, begged for mercy, received mercy. Went and found someone that owed him very little, refused mercy, threw him into prison. The first guy came back, called him back in, and he says this. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? You know, this, this table reminds us God has shown great mercy on us. Should we not have mercy on other people? 
These are all the things that come from this table here. The table reminds us that we're to be merciful to others. And so when you hold the bread and the juice, let that serve as a reminder to you to love your neighbors yourself. And so I've been primarily speaking to people here who claim to be followers of Christ. And this table's for them. It's for people who claim to be a follower of Christ. Perhaps you're here and you have not asked Jesus to God to save you from your sins. You have not cried out for mercy. You have not understood the mercy of God and not received the mercy offered to you. If that's you and you have and you have no desire to trust in God's mercy to save you, then this table is not for you. But if you want to be saved from your sins and identify with Christ by eating this bread and drinking this juice, then just pray to the Lord right now. Just quietly where you're at, just ask God to save you from your sins. Ask God to show you mercy and to give you life. Ask God to change your life. You can just pray that right now. And then this table's for you. Then I just say, join us at the table. So this is Jesus' table. If you claim Jesus as your Savior and desire to be obedient to him and follow him, then participate with us, remembering Jesus' identity and God's mercy and our responsibility around this table here. So let's not treat this table like John Knox's grave. Or we observe it, but we don't appreciate it. Let's fully or let's strive to fully appreciate the table the Lord has set before us this morning. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that we would appreciate this table and that we would appreciate what you have done for us. Thank you for who Jesus is. Thank you for God's mercy. I pray that we would be reminded of our responsibility. Father, as we now, um, as we now take of the bread and of the juice, I pray that this would be meaningful to us. That we wouldn't just observe this, but we'd appreciate it. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.